Good morning. So we're continuing this series on our core values, and I feel like I should point something out for those of you that have been around a while. Um, the core values are kind of like uh, prints. They, they have undergone some name changes. Um, so you might recognize these as the five two principles. Somebody got my prince joke, finally. Whew. We used to call them the five two principles, um, and now we're calling them core values. So if you recognize them and you're like, oh, I thought that was something else, you're right. We are calling them core values now. We're trying to simplify things, but in the process, we confuse people. So um, you're welcome. Uh, so last week, Andy talked about being self-fed as a, as a core value that moves you in the direction of Jesus-centered living. That's our goal. We wanna, if you're a follower of Jesus, we, we wanna be like Jesus. We want our lives to be centered around Jesus. So being self-fed, which is the idea of taking responsibility for your relationship with God, your time in scripture, your spiritual practices, that moves you in the direction of Jesus-centered living. And today we're gonna to talk about servant leadership as a way to move in the direction of, of Jesus-centered living, which is uh, leveraging your relationships with others to serve. That, that you, you wanna look for opportunities with all the people around you to, to serve people. That's what servant leadership is about. So we're gonna dive into that from Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open that to Mark 10. We're gonna go through the whole chapter today. So I'm gonna talk fast, you're gonna listen fast. We'll be good, right? Uh, Mark 10. But uh, before we dive into that, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, my baseball card collecting days. When I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I collected baseball cards. Anybody else collect baseball cards? Um, and so uh, that was back in the days. You go through the grocery store checkout, you could get them. I think some grocery stores still have them. You get the little packet, and it's got 10 or 15 cards in it. And there are three major brands Tops, Don Russ, and Fleer. I was a Tops guy. And so I didn't have money through the grocery store checkout. So I would plead with my dad and he would buy the box, the whole set, uh, 1987, 1988. I had both sets of the Tops baseball cards. So I had every card for those two years. And then you trade with your friends. And so you have other friends who collect cards and you get together and you trade so you can get more of, of the ones that you want. So most of the people I traded with, they would watch the pricing guides. You guys remember the pricing guides called Beckett's? It's, it's now all online. But, um, and actually it's not free. You can't do it for free. I don't know why. But uh, we would, we would, you look through the Beckett's and you see that your card is worth five cents and that card's worth 10 and you try to trade for it. But that's not how I traded. I didn't care about how much they were worth. All I cared about was uh, the color of the jersey. I wanted Braves players and that's it. So uh, I, that's how I traded. I would trade a Willie Mays for a Chris Chambliss. You've heard of Willie Mays? Never heard of Chris Chambliss, but he played, played for the Braves in the 80s. And that's the trade I would make every time because all I cared about was if they were Braves players or not, and nobody else mattered to me. So as a nine-year-old, valuing baseball cards based on what mattered to me, I mean, that's fine, kind of harmless. As a grown person, valuing humans based on what matters to me is a terrible way to go about life. <laughs> and yet we do it. We're all gonna find ourselves doing that from time to time, of valuing people based on what matters to me and that is the opposite of servant leadership. So we're gonna dive into what servant leadership looks like in the life of Jesus uh, in Mark chapter 10. There are basically, there are four stories, four events that happen uh, where Jesus has this opportunity to demonstrate servant leadership. And then in the middle of those four events, there's this conversation that happens with the disciples where he talks about what they're seeing around them uh, in his actions. So let's jump in. Mark 10 uh, verse one starts this, a uh, little narrative that we call Jesus being questioned about divorce. 
I'm not sure that's exactly what was going on here. I think there's something different happening here. Let's, let's get into it. So the, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they come to Jesus and they say, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? The question they're asking is who has the power in the marriage? Who has the power in the marriage? And the going idea at the time, not only in Jewish culture, but in most other cultures at the time, was the man has the power in the marriage. And so the man can make the decisions and he can end it if he wants to. So they, they asked Jesus and his response is, what, what does the law of Moses say? And so they said, well, Moses said it was okay for us to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, right? So that, that was all they needed, an ink pen and a post-it note and a guy could make his own divorce. The problem is a divorced woman has no property and no way to earn money on her own. And so she becomes extremely vulnerable to poverty and oppression. And that was just happening in the Jewish culture. So her job now is to go find, she's gotta go find somebody else to marry or she's gotta figure something out so she can make some money and have a place to live. And so Jesus' response to this situation, Moses said, it's okay, we just write a certificate of divorce and it's all good. The man has the power. Here's Jesus' response to that. We're gonna read some from this story. Again, if you see anything on the screen that's underlined, that's your part, please read that out loud. Jesus says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Okay, Jesus approaches this question, who has the power in the marriage, from two different angles. The first is, he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two, and he says, Here, here's what happened in the first husband and wife. Man will leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis chapter two there. So if two become one, then who has the power? Either they both do or neither does, because they're one. They're not two, they're one, got it? Simple math, one plus one equals one, <laughs> right? That's, that's the math that we're doing, okay? So who has the power? Either both of them or neither of them. And then he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So who has the power in the marriage? God, God does. Because Jesus is saying, this is not just a social contract between two humans who have agreed to join their households for a while. This is a covenant before the creator. And so anything that you do to try to separate this without God being involved, that's breaking the covenant. Jesus says, God has the power. And so what Jesus is doing is he's creating this, he's turning the conversation. So uh, in order to protect women, and he says, hey, you guys, you can't just send women away like that. This is the covenant before God. And so he is recognizing the value of women. He's demonstrating servant leadership by recognizing the value of some people in society that had been devalued. So Jesus values them. He recognizes their value. That's what servant leaders do. All right, next story. Some of you are like, talk about that more. No, we're moving on. Next story. Uh, verse 13, uh, Jesus is teaching. He's saying important things, life-changing things. It's a big adult conversation and some kids run in, okay? We got, we got kids running in to this Bible study being led by Jesus, the most important teacher who ever lived, right? 
And so the, the question being raised here is like, who gets to listen to the rabbi? Who, who should get to listen to and, and have a seat uh, at, in the rabbi's classroom? And the going idea at the time was children, you may have had a grandparent who said this at some point, children should be seen and not heard, right? Right, like this is an adult conversation. You're, you're welcome to sit out there, but stay out of the way. Just don't disrupt. Don't let anything else happen. And that's exactly what the disciples do. These kids start running in. The disciples are like, no, stop it. Stop right there. You're not getting close to Jesus. How does he respond to that? Let's look at verse five. Nope. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Love that word. What that means is, how dare you, right? Isn't that how you feel when you're indignant? How dare you? So Jesus uh, is indignant. He said to them, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God is like a little child, like a little child will never enter it. And? Exactly the opposite of what the disciples wanted him to do, he did, <laughs> right? They want him to send the children away. We're having a grown-up conversation. Important things are happening, and they're just kids. And Jesus is like, they're not just kids. They're kids. They're children. They're precious. So he, not only does he, he value the children, but he actually tells everybody listening, you should try to be more like them because they come to me with faith. They come to me with open arms. They come to me with a desire just to be close to me. You should be more like them. So he, he values someone that, that their society had devalued. He recognizes the value of children. I could say a lot more about that, but we're not. We're gonna move on. We don't have time. Here we go. Uh, the next story is a story we call the story of the rich young ruler. Okay, you guys heard that? It's this wealthy young man comes to Jesus and he says, how do I get into the kingdom of God? I've heard you talk about the kingdom of God. It's pretty awesome. I heard the prophets talk about it. I want in. How do I get in? And Jesus says, well, you gotta, follow, you gotta follow the laws. And then he lists some of the 10 commandments, not all of them, but some specific 10 commandments. Don't murder, don't cheat, honor your father and mother, don't steal. The commandments that have to do with how we treat people. He says, you gotta keep these commands. And the guy's like, good, because I've been doing that since I was a kid. I've checked off all those. I've never murdered, never cheated. I honor my parents this should be a, a shoe-in, right? This guy is, is primed for the kingdom of God because the going idea at the time is wealthy people are blessed by God. That was the rule. If you're wealthy, God has blessed you. You, you somehow have won his favor through either your righteousness or your, your good looks or whatever, I don't know. But you're, if you're wealthy, you're blessed by God. Therefore, you're already, you already got one foot in the kingdom if you're wealthy. And this guy has kept all of these commandments both feet in, right? The question is, who, who belongs in the kingdom of God? Here's Jesus's answer. He's kept all these commandments since he was a kid. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go. And you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Jesus says, you're, you're missing it, man. Like, I know you're checking off these boxes. You haven't murdered anybody. Great, <laughs> good for you. But you know, you can actually keep all of those commands without valuing people. 
You can keep those commands just because they're God's law. And you can say, hey, God's law is important to me. Whatever God says. He says, go, I go. He says, stop, I stop. He says, don't kill, I don't kill. Don't cheat, I don't cheat. You can actually keep all those laws without valuing people. And Jesus says, I, I, I want you to value people. I want you to look really closely at the people around you. You're wealthy. There are a lot of people around you who are not. There was no middle class at the time. You're either rich or you're poor. And Jesus says, you gotta value the poor. You gotta honor the poor. So he tells him to sell all his possessions, give the money to the poor. So two things are happening here. One, he values the poor by providing for their needs. Second, what do you call someone who doesn't have any possessions because he gave them all away? Poor. Jesus is saying, not only do I want you to give to them and provide for them, I want you to become them. That's when I'll know that you really value them, is that you're willing to become them because isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? So he says, here's, here's how you're gonna show me that you really value people. I want you to become like the people who are the most different from you, the poor. So Jesus recognizes the value of those who are devalued by his community. He recognizes the value of the poor. Okay, we seeing a theme yet? Good. Uh, last event in the chapter is in verse 46. Uh, Jesus and his kind of, he's got a whole entourage now and they're, they're on their way somewhere. And he is doing important things. He's doing the work of the kingdom of God. I mean, he's, he's changing lives. He's, he's, he's doing good things. So uh, a blind man sitting on the side of the road hears that Jesus is coming by and he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he's asking Jesus to stop what he's doing, this important work of the kingdom, to give him some attention. The question is, who, who deserves Jesus' attention? Who has permission to interrupt the work of the kingdom being done by the son of God? Who has permission to interrupt that? Well, the going idea at the time was that disabled people were disabled because of sin. That either they sinned or their parents sinned or somebody messed up somewhere along the way and God's judgment on this family is this disability. Therefore, this person's already been judged by God. They're, they're, they're over here. They don't have any voice in this. They don't have a say in this. They don't have any part in this. They've already been judged. You can see it in their disability. That was the idea at the time. So does this man have permission to stop, to interrupt the important work of the kingdom of God? Let's see what happens. Verse 48, many rebuked him, that is the blind man, and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He stopped. He just stopped everything that he was doing. Whatever was on his agenda for the next moment was not as important as this man who was calling out for mercy. He just stopped what he was doing. And he called him over and he asked him a question that if it comes from anybody but Jesus sounds a little ridiculous. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And we're like, isn't it obvious he wants to not be blind anymore? But what is Jesus doing with this question? He is preserving the dignity of this person to ask for what he needs instead of assuming what the person needs. Because his value is in not, not in whether he can see or not. His value is in being a child of God, created in the image of God and being precious to God just as he is. Whether Jesus heals his blindness or not, he is important enough for Jesus to stop what he's doing and give him some attention. But the man says, I just wanna see. And Jesus is like, no problem. I can take care of that. And he heals him. 
and he goes on his way. But his value, I mean, he wasn't more valuable after he was healed. He was just as valuable the whole time. Jesus stopped everything to ask him what he needed. We can speculate. What if he had said something else? What if he had asked for something else? Would Jesus have healed him? I don't know. The blindness wasn't a problem for him. He was already valuable and precious to God. So Jesus demonstrates servant leadership by recognizing the value of the disabled and making a statement to the people around him. Like, this is not God's judgment on him. He is precious. So important that I will stop the work of the kingdom to do what's actually the work of the kingdom and heal this man. Okay, so those are the four stories. Jesus demonstrates servant leadership in these different ways by valuing people that society had devalued. Got that? Then in the middle of this, there are a couple conversations Jesus has that are a little uh, strange until you see the whole, put them in context here. So they're on their way to Jerusalem, right? And Jesus tells us, he kind of pulls them aside and he says, all right, guys, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. He actually gets pretty specific. He says, they're going to mock, spit on, flog, and kill me. And then I'll rise from the dead. Just went right over their heads. They didn't get it at all. They didn't understand what he was saying. This was a logical contradiction. It was like saying, draw a square circle. They're like, no, we think you're the Messiah. And the Messiah doesn't get mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. Like that's a logical contradiction. Either you're the Messiah and that will never happen to you. Or if that happens to you, you must not be the Messiah. They they couldn't compute those two things. That's not what happens to leaders in the kingdom of God. But what Jesus is about to show them is that's exactly what happens to leaders in the kingdom of God. So then there's this, this whole conversation among the disciples about who's the greatest. So here's what they think is gonna happen. They think Jesus is gonna somehow overthrow Rome and he is going to take a seat on the throne of Israel and reestablish Israel as a powerful nation, people belonging to God. And so they're thinking ahead. They're like, well, what are we, what's a, what are we gonna do when Jesus is sitting on the throne? And so James and John go to Jesus with a question and they say, uh, hey, Jesus, would you do us a favor? And, and like any wise person, he answers that with, what favor, right? You, you always say, what is it before you say yes, right? So he says, what, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said, Jesus, when you get on your throne, we wanna sit on your right and left. I mean, these were brothers. They were called the sons of thunder. And they were, they were probably like, we've earned this spot, you know? We, we've, we've worked hard. We've sacrificed so much for you. So when you get to that position of power, we wanna be right there beside you. We want these positions of power and honor. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. And have you not been paying attention to what I've been doing? So he said, time out, huddle up, calls the disciples together and talks to them. Here's here's what he says to them after this request by James and John. Uh, Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Oh, that's that's so important. It should be said again. Let's, Let's do that again. Not so with you. Jesus is saying there is a way that leadership works outside the kingdom of God. And it looks like this, top down. The people in charge are over the people and they're over the people and they're over the other people. Not so with you. We're gonna do things differently. He goes on. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Next slide. All right? Is it up there? No? For E, yeah, there we go. And to give his life as a ransom for many. We got through it. Good job. So Jesus is saying, like, guys, you're, you're totally misunderstanding what leadership, what authority, what power look like in the kingdom of God. So first of all, they should have been paying attention to his actions. What did he do every time he had an opportunity to elevate himself by giving an answer that the people would all cheer for? He actually used that opportunity to elevate someone else that had been devalued by their society. He elevates women, children, the poor, the disabled, and he's like, first of all, just pay attention to what I'm doing. And second, like, this is exactly what leadership in the kingdom looks like. You put yourself at the bottom, you go to the end of the line. And it may mean that you get mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed. That's what happens to leaders in the kingdom of God. And at this point, you're going, I'm glad I'm not a leader in the kingdom of God but you are. I mean, Jesus told all of his disciples, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, he gave us a mission. And that mission is to go and have influence on the people around us, salt and light. It's the whole point of salt and light, right? They have influence on the things around them. Light pushes back darkness. Salt preserves and flavors. If you have influence or if you've been called to influence, you are a leader. So this is, a lesson and a message for all of us that leadership in the kingdom of God is not about how people see you. It's about how you see other people. It's not about how people see you. That, that's, that's how we think of leadership. Why? I, I need to be strong. I need to be confident. I need to be a good decision maker. I need to be trustworthy. I need to have a vision so people will follow me and we know we're going somewhere. No, that's, that's all about how people see the leader. That's not what leadership in the kingdom of God is about. It's about how the leader sees people and values the people that society has devalued. Because when we recognize the value of the people around us, then we wanna do what's best for them. That's what love means. Love is doing what's best for someone, even if it costs you. And when we recognize the value of the people around us, we wanna do what's best for them, even if it costs us servant leadership. But we get so busy worrying about how people think of us and shaping our, uh, our image and, and, you know, manipulating and using the right words and leveraging so that people think we're smart and strong and funny and what, whatever it is that matters to you. Jesus is like, that, that doesn't actually matter at all. What matters is how, how are you valuing the people that your society has devalued? Unfortunately, this is not a problem that's just out there. This is a problem that finds its way into the church. We have allowed some socially constructed barriers to get between us, to use as measuring sticks for value. I just wanna go through a few of these. And this is an opportunity for us to kind of all be humble and kind of say, God, all right, this is the moment. If you're gonna speak to me, if you're gonna say something to me, this is, this is the time. So I'm gonna go through just a few of these barriers that, We've sort of made up as humans 
to determine how valuable people are. And if, if any of these kind of hits you, steps on your toes, makes you mad at me, that's a good sign that God is speaking to you, <laughs> okay? Uh, first is, is generational barriers. People who are a lot older than me or people who are a lot younger than me, I don't get them. I don't understand them. I don't understand their world. They do things that I think are dumb. Therefore, I just, I don't need those people in my life. I can avoid them. They can do their thing. I'll do my thing. What? That's not how family works, right? So in the kingdom of God, we don't, we don't allow generational divides. We just made that up. That's not a measure for value. Just something that our society has created. It gets into our heads and in our hearts and creates division in the church. Uh, the second is socioeconomic barriers. People who are a lot wealthier than me or people who are a lot poorer than me, don't have anything in common with them. You know, good for them, glad they're doing their thing. Not part of my life. Or maybe if people who are wealthier than me, I kind of put them up on a pedestal. I'm like, how do I, how do I get there? Like, that's where I want to be. I want to I want to have what they have. I want to be able to take vacations like they take. I want to be able to drive cars like they drive or live where they live or just have the freedom that they have. And people who have a lot less than me were like, well, glad I'm not them, you know? It could always be worse. I could be like those people. Oh man, you hear how it sounds out loud? It's like terrible. We don't do that maybe consciously, but sometimes with our actions, the, the people we choose to spend time with, we, we are honoring this social barrier that is created to put division in the church. Uh, third, uh, political divides. People who are farther left than you, they're just, they're crazy, right? People who are farther right than you, just, just, just insane. I mean, there's something wrong with them, right? I mean, that's how we think. That's how we function. We think that that's okay in the church because this is about stuff that matters. Can you believe who they voted for? I mean, come on. Made it up. It's not a measure of value in the kingdom of God. The people who voted differently than you, God loves them just as much as he does you. They're just as valuable to him. Right? Uh, Fourth, ethnic or racial divides. Not a measure of value. We made that up. As humanity, we just made that up. People who don't, they don't look like me, they don't talk like me, I don't know how to pronounce their name, speak a different language, come from a different place, I don't have anything in common. We made that up. That's not a value measurement in the kingdom of God. Every tribe and tongue and nation will be present in the new creation. We better be on board with that. Uh, last, religious divides, religious barriers, where we, we look at people who believe differently than us. And this is probably the one that most Christians feel justified in just kind of owning. Like, well, I mean, we have the truth, right? I mean, we, what we believe is the truth. Jesus is the only way to heaven. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's my God. And anybody who believes differently, well, it's too bad for them, but they're out. You know, God valued people who believe differently so much. He converted this guy named Saul from like this Pharisaical Judaism, turned him into a Christian, a Jesus follower, and sent him to go love on people who believe differently and speak the truth to them. People who believe differently than you are just as valuable to God as you are. 
but we let these socially made up barriers get between us and serving other people. And if you and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to be leaders, we better be servant leaders. We better value the people that our society has devalued, or maybe that we in our own hearts, or maybe it's the way you were raised, or maybe it's the culture that you're in at work or at school, but kingdom of God, Jesus says, not so with you. We're playing by a different set of rules. Here's why this matters so much. Because when we get this wrong as the church, how do people respond to that? Stay away. When we get this wrong, when we allow these socially constructed barriers to divide us and to divide us from others, who wants to be a part of that? And people stay away from the church in droves because of that. But when we get it right, we are a city on a hill. I mean, we are pushing back darkness. We're we're bringing flavor and preservation to things that are good in the world as salt and light. When we get this right, we get to shine a magnifying glass on the person of Jesus. So are we gonna get it wrong or are we gonna get it right? I, I know what we want to do. If we're gonna get there, we need to be pretty honest with where we're at and we need to take some steps in the right direction. So we're gonna pray about that right now as we close. Would you stand? So we're gonna pray. We're gonna ask God humbly and his spirit to convict us. If there, if there are any people that I have devalued by my actions, don't, don't, don't even think about it as in my head because most of us are gonna go, no, I, I think everybody's equally valuable, Right? But what about our actions? Are there, are there any people I have devalued by my actions, my behavior, the way I talk about them, the way I ignore them? Holy Spirit, convict me of that and give me an opportunity to serve them this week. That's, that's our prayer. Because, because, because. We're called to be a city on a hill. We gotta get this right if that's gonna work. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the example of Jesus not only valuing people that had been devalued, but laying his life down for sinners like me. So my prayer for all of us this morning is you'll convict our hearts. If there are places where we've devalued people by our words or actions, just put that on us. Give us an opportunity to take a step in a different direction this week for your glory, for the salvation of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for being here. Go in peace. You are sent to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs Christ. See you next week.